Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 12. Well, indeed, it's true that um, we seem to be living in desperate times. I'm assuming that you all are aware of the things we've been praying about and talking about. I've been looking at social media pretty carefully, just kind of following what everybody's been saying about everything that's been happening with the shooting of the police officers in Dallas and the police shootings in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis. And, um, you know, people are saying stuff like this. You know, these aren't Christians as far as I know. Madness all around us. Heaven help us. A country drowning in grief. A week from hell. How do we explain America 2016? to our children. In the New York Times, there's been editorials about the situation in the last couple of days, and it was interesting, there was one on Saturday that I read, and the author, the writer, um, placed his hope in the ultimate victory of righteousness over wrong, which he said requires an almost religious faith. And he said, I know that a lot of people don't like me saying that, but that's the case. Isn't it it interesting that in desperate times, people get so desperate that they start looking heavenward? They start thinking about things in spiritual categories, don't they? They start talking about stuff like righteousness, heaven help us, religious faith. And as the conversation continues about what has caused our problems, everybody's got a different opinion. Is it gun control? Is it racism? Is it a violent society? I mean, we're all addressing these issues. Here's one thing I don't hear people talk about very much. Here's a question that I haven't seen asked. What is wrong with the human heart? How come nobody asks that question? How come nobody is wondering what's the matter with us? Well, that's, that's an answer a Christian can address. That's an answer a Christian has. We're a Christian people here. We're not perfect, and perhaps we have contributed to the problem in various ways, but God has entrusted to us the words of life. We believe, not in an arrogant, self-righteous way, we believe we have the answer It's not in us, it's in what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ to save sinners, to fill people with the Holy Spirit, to empower them to deny themselves and to live a righteous life in a fallen world. That's the answer. And so, this is no time for us as Christians, for us as believers, to be apathetic, indifferent about our faith. 
This is no time for us to be like the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah said, how long will you go limping about between two different opinions? This is no time for being merely Sunday morning Christians. This is no time in our nation to be half-hearted in our commitment to Jesus and to his word. This is no time to be riding the fence about whether we really believe in Jesus and whether we really love him and whether we really want to obey him or not. Desperate times require desperate measures. And I don't mean irrational, emotional, angry outbursts. I mean a measure of something as simple as this, as just giving yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus. If you're waffling on that or not uh, lately, this is the time to make a decision. And this is what we're going to talk about here today. And actually, it is the subject of this passage in Romans 12. These first two verses, providentially, this comes to us at, I think, a good time. The passage doesn't address any of the social issues that are before us. The passage is simply a call to God's people, to everyone to give yourself wholly to Jesus. We're here at chapter 12. We've been going through Romans one passage at a time. And as we get to chapter 12, you're going to notice there's an abrupt change. In chapters 1 through 11, it's been just constant doctrine from start to finish. I think maybe there's one or two places where Paul actually issues a command, but it's almost entirely doctrine. And now we get to chapter 12, and he changes gears, and there's this abrupt shift so that now it's going to be all application from chapter 12, verse 1, pretty much to the end of the book. Here we have this call to us in chapters, uh, in verses 1 and 2. Just a couple verses, but man, these verses are packed full. So let's read this together. If you please stand for the reading of God's Word. (coughs) Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God in heaven, we call on you to bless now the preaching of your word by your spirit that, Father, you would be pleased and that your son would be exalted as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So what does it look like to give yourself to, to Jesus? There's really three ways that we see Paul giving this exhortation. And the first one is very simple. It's give your heart to Jesus. That's the first part of you that you need to give to Jesus. Now, the word heart actually isn't included in these two verses, but let me explain. I think it's appropriate to say that. Because if you look at the very first verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That word, therefore, you see that in the Bible fairly often, but that is a hugely significant word in this place, in verse 1. Therefore. When you see the word therefore, as they say, you ask what it's there for. 
You ask, what, what preceded this to make Paul say this? On what is he basing now the comments that he's about to make? He's been saying something, and now he says on the basis of this, I'm going to tell you to do that. So what does he mean? What, what is he thinking about? And, and I think what he's thinking about is the entire book of Romans so far, chapters 1 through 11. He's explained this, and now he's saying, therefore, based on everything we've been talking about here for the last year and a half or whatever it was we started, uh, the book of Romans. So here's what I'm, I'm going to take a quick three minutes here and review the book of Romans. All right, we're going to race through this um, to get kind of a bird's eye view of where Paul has been so that we can understand that word therefore uh, a little better. So remember way back when, Romans 1 to 3, do you remember what Paul was saying there. One of the main elements of his point had to do with the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed, he said. And he made that point that the wrath of God is revealed particularly against Gentiles in chapter 1 because he said Gentiles, by Gentiles meaning people who are not part of the religious community, people who don't necessarily believe in God, people who are outside the church. But what Paul says is they know that God exists because they see his invisible attributes displayed in creation and yet they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness and so they are under the wrath of God. But Paul goes on, chapter 2, and makes the case that the Jews are not off the hook They've been part of the religious community. Yes, they are believers in God. But as they go about judging Gentiles for all their wickedness, what Paul says is they do the very same thing. And they're guilty as well of disobeying God. And they're under the wrath of God as well. Everybody is under the wrath of God. That's the bad news that Paul is presenting in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. And it's summed up here in verse 19 of chapter 3. <clears throat> Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. A good summary of chapters 1 through 3. But Paul goes on to say, there's really good news. Because the problem is we all need righteousness to stand before God and be accepted by Him. And it's a righteousness we cannot produce on our own. But the good news in the gospel is that a righteousness has been revealed from God. A righteousness that He offers to us and that He has accomplished for us in the person of Jesus Christ. In His obedience, in His death on the cross, and in His resurrection. And so a little later in chapter 3 we get this wonderful summary. I think I might have called this the greatest paragraph ever written. Paul talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned, Jew and Gentile, everybody, and fall short of the glory of God. But, and justified by His grace as a gift, not by works, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Righteousness received through faith, not by anything that we do. That's the good news of the gospel. And what Paul sums up in chapter 3. Well, he goes on in chapters 4 and 5 to talk about imputation. Maybe some of you remember when we talked about that big word, imputation. That is the way that God gives righteousness to us. He credits it to us by accomplishing it in the person of Jesus and then giving it to us through faith. And in chapter 4, Paul used Abraham as an example of that. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, he says. That's chapter 4. And then he goes into chapter 5 and he talks about federal headship. 
the way the entire human race is based on just two significant individuals, Adam and Jesus. And then everybody is either in Adam through birth or in Jesus through faith. And so it's not really a question of Jew or Gentile. It's a question of whether you've trusted Christ or not. Because if you haven't trusted Christ, you're in Adam. That means you're in your sin. That means you're still under wrath. But if you've trusted Christ, now Christ is your head, and you're righteous in him through faith. And so at the end of chapter 5, or middle of chapter 5, he sums this up. Because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man. Because of one man's trespass, excuse me, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So it's very simple. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, you're righteous before God. But then Paul anticipates that someone might say, well, if that's the case, then I guess I can do whatever I want, can't I? I can live however I wish because I'm saved by a righteousness that's not my own. So I don't have to worry about my own righteousness. So he starts chapter 6 and he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, absolutely not. That's a false conclusion. No. He goes in chapter 6 and says, you're a slave to Jesus now. You're either a slave to your sin or you're a slave to Jesus. You can't escape slavery. If you're a Christian, you now have a new master and you're called to submit to and obey him. And then he goes into chapter 7 and he talks about the difficulty that is involved in living for Jesus. And that is that very often we find ourselves doing the thing we don't want to do and not doing the things that we want to do. And so chapter 7 is all about that internal conflict that we all know and we're all aware of as Christians. How hard it is to do the right thing and to obey God. And as if anticipating then that that might bring some insecurity among God's people, wondering if they're really Christians or not because they struggle with sin, Paul goes into chapter 8 and gives us this wonderful assurance. First verse, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And throughout all of chapter 8, he just talks about everything that God has done, predestining us before the foundation of the world, justifying us, pronouncing us not guilty, and even promising to glorify us on the last day. <clears throat> and then the very end of chapter 8, we have this wonderful summary. Neither life, excuse me, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful promise of assurance in the gospel. We cannot be separated from God's loving commitment to us. And then chapters 9 through 11, Paul begins to try to answer this question about whether the promises, <coughs> excuse me, whether the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament have failed since so many Jews don't seem to believe in Jesus. He takes three chapters to talk about that. Um, talks about the doctrine of election, how God is, that's really the, the root cause of anybody's salvation, is not whether they're Jew or Gentile, but whether God has elected them from before the foundation of the world. And then he moves through chapter 11 and gives us this assurance that there is a future conversion of the Jews. All Israel will be saved. That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And so we have this mysterious way that God brought Gentiles to faith by taking the gospel from the Jews and turning it toward the Gentiles. 
But the time's going to come when the Jews are going to be jealous of what the Gentiles have, and they're going to come to faith too. And there's going to be an abundance of people worshiping around the throne of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's what, Paul's, that's what Paul's doing. Having said all of that, therefore, in light of all of that, in light of everything that God has done, in removing the wrath of God and giving us righteousness and making sure the gospel gets to all of his elect, in light of all that, what Paul says is, now I'm going to tell you what to do. Starting in chapter 12. Now, this gets to a very important principle that you have to understand if you want to get the gospel. And it's this. In Christianity, grace always precedes the law. We don't obey the law in order to get God to be gracious to us. God is gracious to us first and then gives us the law, then tells us how to live and what to do. The theologians say it this way, it's the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what is true, the imperative is what to do. Chapters one through 11, what is true? Chapters 12 through 16, what to do? This is always the way Paul works. He tells us doctrine and then tells us duty. He tells us what we should believe and then he tells us how to behave. He gives us creed and then he tells us about conduct. But you get that mixed up and you'll be very mixed up spiritually. If you begin to think that it's your behavior or your duty or your conduct that is going to get God to love you, that's not Christianity and that's the way you enter into guilt and fear and shame. But what this is all about is look at everything that God has done. And so when Paul says by the mercies of God, I think what he's saying by that word mercies is everything that has come before here in the first 11 chapters of Romans. The 11 chapters of Romans are an explanation of how merciful God is to sinners in the gospel. Here's what John Calvin says, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Give yourself to Jesus but don't give yourself to Jesus to get him to be merciful to you. Give yourself to Jesus because he already has. It's like, as an example, let's say there's a, a father and a son. They love each other. The son is secure in his family. It's a healthy family. The son knows that he belongs. He, he knows his father loves him. And then, let's say he goes to play some baseball, and he's standing at the plate, and he strikes the bat three times, doesn't hit the ball, strikes out. Is that son going to think, oh my goodness, I failed. I failed to perform. Maybe dad's going to kick me out of the family. I mean, is, 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 the, is the kid going to think that if it's a healthy, loving family? No, of course not. He knows his performance has nothing to do with whether he belongs in the family. Now, the next time he gets up to bat, knowing that, however, is he going to try to hit a home run? Yes, he is. 
Why? Why is he going to try to hit that home run so he can get into the family? Nope. He's going to try to hit the home run for dad, for his father, who loves him and has given him a place in the family. Friends, this is what, first and foremost, what God wants from you is not your home runs. What he wants is a heart moved by mercy. Has your heart been touched by the mercy of the gospel? That's the first and foremost question anyone needs to ask before considering giving yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus because of his mercy, not to get his mercy. Second thing, give your bodies to Jesus too. Give your bodies to Jesus. Verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, you've heard people say many times, give your heart to Jesus. You probably heard us say that here at New Life. I mean, it's a very popular thing to say, give your heart to Jesus. But you don't hear people say very often, give your body to Jesus. <laughs> it just kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? Give your body. Jesus wants you to give your body to him. What, what does that mean? And I think one of the reasons why that sounds so strange to us is because many of us have adopted the worldview that actually existed at the time of the writing of Romans, the Greek worldview, which said that the body was something evil and dirty and immoral. Greeks thought the body was the problem. Salvation was escape from the body. The soul is better than the body. The body is a trap. My body is a cage, as Arcade Fire <laughs> sang many years ago. Many people see the body as kind of a cage. That's the Greek thought, and Paul seems to be including this word here, bodies, as a way to kind of get a rise out of the Greeks. But the fact that we think it sounds a little strange, too, tells us that many of us have kind of adopted that same kind of idea. You see, what God wants, friends, is, is not just your heart, not just your feelings, not just some kind of internal, warm, fuzzy, spiritual reality inside. He wants more than that. He wants all of you, heart and body. He's concerned about what you're doing in your body, where your eyes are looking, where your feet are walking, what your lips are speaking, what you're eating, and how much you're eating. He's concerned about this. And to whom you're joining your body by sexual union, God is concerned about that. Christianity is a bodily, holistic religion, and it's very dangerous when people begin to separate the two and think somehow my heart is more important than my body. As an example of that, George Harrison was the guitarist for the Beatles in the 60s, and um, you might know that George Harrison had the reputation of being the, the spiritually-minded Beatle. You know, he was devoted to his conception of, of God, of practicing Hindu, I think it was. One of his big hits in the 1970s was called My Sweet Lord. He had a reputation, I mean, throughout his life of being a religious, spiritual person. And yet he was also known to have a great fondness for other men's wives. He was said to have had hundreds 
of affairs on his first wife and on his second wife. And yet he was this spiritual person. He was so devoted to his God. And yet in his mind, apparently, there was some kind of a disconnect between the spirit and the body. That, that is not Christianity. God calls for our bodies as well. And you see what he calls for. He calls for our bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now this is getting you know, deeper into what God is really expecting us to do with our bodies. We heard Leviticus chapter 1 a little while ago and we heard about the sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament. And you might know that this is the way it would work. A person would bring an animal and the priest would present that animal before the temple and he would lay his hand on the animal's head as a way of transferring the guilt of the person to the animal and then the animal would be slaughtered. The animal would be sacrificed. Fat taken out, head chopped off, blood sprinkled over the altar. It was a mess. And that's the imagery that Paul has in mind here when he calls us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. But that word living is very important. <laughs> He's calling us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. He's not calling on us to offer up our bodies to death or on an altar, to literally sacrifice ourselves to death in order to earn acceptance from God. Why? Because Jesus already did that. And he is the final sacrifice. So that's not what Paul is calling on us to do. That's why he says it's a living sacrifice. What he's saying is that in all of our lives, as we are alive, we should consider our bodies to be offered up to God sacrificially. Every moment, every day, seven days a week, not just Sunday morning. The idea here is that we are to be fully at God's disposal, that we are to hold nothing back from him, that we are to be willing to obey everything he says and be thankful for everything he sends. And as we live in this way, what Paul is saying is that this is your spiritual worship. This is holy and acceptable to God. This is a form of worship. All of life, friends, is worship. It's not like when you leave here at the end of this service and go to your whatever you're doing this afternoon and this week that somehow worship ends. No, worship continues. And the way you worship is by presenting your body to God in submission and in sacrifice. That doesn't lessen the importance of being here on Sunday morning. Some people think that, oh yeah, all of life is worship, therefore I don't have to worship God on Sunday mornings. No, it's both and. But the new thought to a lot of people is to consider that whether you're changing diapers, or whether you're exercising at the gym, or whether you're watching Netflix, that in every place and every point of your life, it's all worship. And you're called to offer your bodies as a sacrifice. Friends, the world is on fire. Are we gonna be people who are unwilling to sacrifice for Jesus? People redeemed by Jesus, people called to be holy, people who know the truth, and we're going to be people who live just like the world and pursuing comfort and pleasure at every moment of our lives? Is that the way we're going to be? A lot of opportunities to sacrifice. Getting up out of bed on a Sunday morning and getting here, that's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of your body. 
You're lying there? I want to sleep. I'm tired. My body is telling me to sleep. <laughs> you get up and offer your body as a sacrifice. You have the temptation to want to slander somebody's reputation, use your lips to damage somebody. It feels so good. You close your mouth. It kind of hurts because you want to do it so badly, but you close your mouth as an act of sacrifice. You love somebody. You're not married to that person, but you love that person, and you want to have sex with that person. But you're a Christian, and so you sacrifice your body. You deny yourself the pleasures that you love to have because you're called to worship God with the giving of your body. It's all really summed up by Jesus in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Last thing, give your minds. Give your minds to Jesus. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Major contrast there that Paul is saying. Don't be conformed to the world. That is, don't allow the influences in the world and the culture outside to impinge upon you and invade your senses in such a way that you begin to think and act and feel like the world. Don't do that. Instead, be transformed from the inside out. And the means by which we are transformed, according to Paul, is through the mind. One of the saddest things that has developed in the Christian church over the years is this idea that Christians are anti-intellectual, that Christians leave their brains at the door. This idea that the only thing that really matters is what's going on in your heart. The call of the Christian faith is to devote your mind to think through things theologically, biblically, to submit yourself to the word that the scriptures would shape your thinking in your view of everything that happens. The Bible says that over and over again. Here's Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. First Peter, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take our thoughts captive to obey Christ. We discipline our minds to think truthfully and biblically about everything. And what Paul says is if you're not going to do that, you're not going to be changed. And he says that as we are shaped in our mind, that's how we end up understanding what the will of God is. Then we can discern what God's will is, what he wants from us. So many of us are trying to, fill, uh, trying to discern the will of God just based on feelings and based on um, just uh, you know, bizarre coincidences in our lives without any regard for what the scriptures actually say. If you want to know the will of God for your life, you need to devote yourself and immerse yourself in the word of God. What's really great here is Paul is not saying that you have to be a brilliant academic. He's not saying you have to have an IQ, high IQ, in order to be transformed. He's just talking about a different way of looking at the world. It's just a way of interpreting events and things 
in the world. John Owen says this, the difference between the knowledge of believers and unbelievers is not so much a difference in the matter of their knowledge, but in the manner of their knowing. The excellence of a believer is not that he has a large grasp of things and knows all kinds of things, but that what he does grasp, which may be very little, he sees it in the light of the Spirit of God, in a saving, soul-transforming light. And this is that which gives us communion with God. Examples. Someone says, if it makes you happy, do it. That's not Christianity, friends. That's hedonism. Someone says, it's 2016, and our views of morality have changed, and we need to adjust to keep up with how things are going in our culture. That's not Christianity. That's relativism. People say, if you can make more money, do it. That's the primary consideration. Get rich, be comfortable. That's not Christianity. That's materialism. People say, as they look at the events of our nation in this past week, the world is out of control. And that's not Christianity either. That's secularism. That's living as if God doesn't exist. That's living like an atheist. What we sing here at New Life sometimes is this. This is my Father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler thinking with a transformed mind about what is happening in our, in our nation. Friends, what, what is shaping your mind? What is influencing your mind the most? As you reflect on everything that's been going on over the last week, months, years, what is shaping your thinking? Is it Fox News or MSNBC or the scriptures? Is it the comments of Donald Trump or the comments of Hillary Clinton, or the scriptures? Is it the things you read on Twitter and Facebook, or is it the scriptures? Is it the fear and anger in your heart, or is it the scriptures? This is what Paul is calling us to do, to be people shaped in our minds by the word of God. Give your heart to Jesus, give your bodies to Jesus, give your minds to Jesus. I'm just going to close by reading this passage from Lamentations. Lamentations written about the destruction of Jerusalem as Jeremiah sees the violence in his own city. And he says this, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. I began to think biblically. And Jeremiah says, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
is your faithfulness. And that is a truth that we can take into our minds as we proceed to live faithfully in a broken and fallen world. Let's pray. Our Lord, we um, want to live faithfully before you in a way that demonstrates your love and grace to a troubled world. We pray that you'd help us to do that. Father, I pray that you would melt our hearts by your mercy, that you would give us the grace to sacrifice our bodies in service to you, and that our minds would be continually transformed by your truth, and that you would be pleased, exalted, glorified, and honored in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.